Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LEFT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Propaganda, Grit TV, RT America, Drug Reporter, HCL you and Dan Savage. Let's start off in an unexpected place. The Oregon State Legislature. House Committee on Business and Labor for the 15th of September 2014. Okay, welcome all back. Doesn't seem like very long that we've been here, but uh, before we... This year, the State Committee on Business and Labor is taking on policy that relates to a line of work that affects thousands of people and millions of dollars, but that few legislatures bother to regulate, except for banning it. Sex work. Usually conversations about sex work get mired in a couple thorny issues. Is it good or bad? Is it empowering to women or not? But the term sex work encompasses a lot of jobs, which means people who are all sex workers have wildly different experiences, incomes, backgrounds, and perspectives. It's not all good, it's not all bad. Sex work refers to all people who provide sexual services for pay. People who make pornography, webcam performers, erotic dancers, escorts, sexual surrogates who have sex with clients as part of therapy. Some people choose the line of work and are proud of it. It's part of their identity. Others are forced into it by economic circumstance or physical coercion. Some kinds of sex work, of course, are legal in the United States, like making pornography. Some are legal but heavily regulated, like strip clubs. And some, like having sex for money, are illegal in most all of the United States. This illegality creates an alternate economy for sex workers. And that's what we're going to explore today, that alternate economy. What does it mean to treat sex work as work? What would it mean for the finances of sex work if it was legal? What would it mean for their safety? What would making sex work regulated like other industries require changing legally and socially in our society? Now, back at the Oregon legislature, lawmakers will soon be discussing one small slice of that question. Writer Mary Emily O'Hara at the Daily Beast recently reported that in Oregon, the National Association of Social Workers is working on passing policy that will ensure workplace protection for erotic dancers. Across the country, erotic dancers are often considered independent contractors. Even if they work at a club for 40 hours a week, they're not technically employees. They're not entitled to minimum wage or to get workers' comp if they're hurt on the job. Many dancers have stories of working an eight-hour shift and taking home only 20 bucks after having to pay the club fees and deal with paltry tips. Several dancers have filed suit in past years, saying that's illegal. And in Oregon, they've won. In the 1990s, clubs with names like Jiggles, Babe's Cabaret, and Great Alaskan Bush Company were forced to pay back wages to dancers who were paid less than other employees. The policy about workplace protections for erotic dancers is still in the works. It might require dancers to get a license, like a bartender or a food service worker. But it's a big deal that the issue of treating sex work, like other kinds of work, is up for debate in the legislature. As State Representative Margaret Doherty, who chairs that Committee on Business and Labor, told the Daily Beast, everyone deserves safety and fairness in their workplace. Laura Flanders. In a people-centered city, does sex work deserve a place? Mainstream media are endlessly fascinated by the industry. Politicians and police compete to crack down and put places like strip clubs out of business. We even allow vigilantes to set themselves up as our moral avengers, usually men like Brian Bates of John TV. 
So what about the sex workers themselves? Do they deserve a say in all of this? Journalist Melissa Jira Grant is author of the new book, Playing the Whore, The Work of Sex Work, just out from Verso. Congratulations on the book, Melissa. Thank you so much. So let's start with your subtitle, Melissa, The Work of Sex Work. Um, work appears twice. You clearly care about the concept. Um, what do you mean? What are you getting at? Uh, this is the most missing part in the conversations about sex work that I feel like most people want to have, which... For me, sex work is fundamentally a question of work, not of crime, not of law and order, not even of oppression. Uh, but this is something that people do to survive, like any other job. But for some reason, that's a very controversial claim, and that's because of sex, right? Like, people are having a very challenged, are very challenged by thinking about sex as a kind of thing that you could trade um, or something that you could commodify. And, you know, I understand that raises all kinds of questions for people, but for sex workers, this is fundamentally about what they do to survive. It's about the money that they need to live on. It's a question of, of labor and of rights. And you say in, somewhere in, early in the book that you have some skin in this game. Yes, I had been a sex worker for 10 years doing different kinds of sex work, um, in part because journalism is a really hard business to break into. <laughs> and in a way, this was funding, you know, my various unpaid or very underpaid work as a journalist. So, you know, I understand sex work as part of the mainstream economy. You know, it's the, the work that people can do to support what they need to do when the money isn't there. So talk for a minute to those who are more on the receiving end of mainstream media, perhaps, mm -hmm. and who are really concerned that sex work is not anything that women go into freely, that it has a, you know, devastating effect on the women that participate. And that can often lead to, you know, a lifetime of pain and suffering for the women involved. Uh, the mainstream picture of sex work is actually what got me into journalism because I felt like the kinds of stories that really dominate in the media, stories about violence, exploitation, uh, stories about sex trafficking, far got a greater hearing and, and I think pulled on people's heartstrings a lot more than stories about sex work as just a job that people did. Like the absolute ordinariness of sex work as I experienced it was not really represented in the media. And so those kinds of, you know, sometimes salacious stories, is, you know, just to be blunt about it, um, would dominate the real life picture of sex work as I knew it. So that was one of my inspirations for, for doing this book and doing this work. There's also policy work. There's a story recently in the New York Times about how genius it was that some policy maker had figured out how to put strip clubs out of business in the Bronx by denying them liquor licenses. Right, and at no point do people ask, well, how do we know that strip clubs are dangerous for communities? Why is this the, the presumption that, that um, putting them out of business rests upon? There was no um, treatment in that piece, the one in the New York Times that, that um, talked about the Bronx strip clubs, of the dancers themselves and what impact this would have on their wallets and what they were going to do. Would there be another club for them to work at? Um, you know, I understand that the community has a stake in what goes on in the community, what kind of businesses are there, but sex workers are part of that community too. Well, talk about what place the, this industry plays in a community economy or ecology, if you will. Sure. I think, you know, just to start with sort of the conventional picture of sex work in the city, people have this image. Um, I refer to this as the prostitute imaginary, this character, usually a woman, sometimes a woman of color, miniskirt, fishnets, boots, leaned into a car, right? We've seen this stock image and story after story. And that kind of character ends up becoming the stand-in for, I think, how people think sex work actually operates. Uh -huh. When in reality, because of forces like gentrification, because of the kinds of policing that we see in cities, particularly to talk about New York for a moment, just the kind of racial and gender-based profiling that we see in policing, um, the people who are doing sex work that look like that character, that population is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking mm -hmm. because that is who the pe police are most focused on. And that's where public attention is most focused on. We're not focused on the vast majority of the industry that's actually operating behind closed doors. The Elliott Spitzer part of the industry. The Elliott Spitzer part of the industry and everything in between, right? Like the mom and pop strip club that's off the highway or the porn theater that's underneath the overpass, you know, like these, it's the idea of like a red light district in the city is something that's like almost extinct. Mm -hmm. And I think that has as much to do with, you know, ideas of sexual morality and community standards as it does with economic development and who gets pushed out of a city and who's seen as desirable and who's seen as undesirable. You write in your book about the many, many people that derive value from sex work. Like who? 
journalists, it's an endless trove, just to, to be self-reflective for a minute. I mean, this is an endless topic for people to explore, but there's also the police, right? This is a, an avenue for policing. Um, there's actually increasing funds available for vice policing because of concerns about human trafficking. So very often, human trafficking operations are housed within the vice department, even though we know that human trafficking occurs in many different industries. But frequently, the lion's share of the resources are going to anti-prostitution law enforcement. Um, and then there's, you know, kind of a third group that the anthropologist Laura Augustin describes as the rescue industry. Um, these are folks who operate projects that are designed to remove sex workers from sex work and to offer them services, alternative employment. Sometimes these are the promises they make. It's not necessarily something they are offering, mm -hmm. um, but the kind of service side of the industry. That what about people like the John TV guy? Well, I mean, this is... This is a way that people can become notorious, right? Because it is a salacious story, and he can present himself as someone who uh, is brave enough to tell the story. But, you know, when I look at something like John TV, I see somebody who is, you know, himself almost part of the industry. His behavior is quite like an abusive person posing as a customer who's trailing after sex workers, trying to surveil them, trying to insert himself in their lives when that's unwanted. It feels like the kind of predatory behavior that makes people very scared about the sex industry itself. So let's, uh, let's ask, answer, have you answer a pretty basic question, which is, is sex work necessarily forced work? Is it, um, do women have free choice to go into sex work? It's a hard question to ask without thinking of all of the work that we do. That's how I understand it. Um, it feels like we put such a double standard on sex workers to prove to themselves that they've made an empowered choice in a way that we don't ask that question about people in other kinds of service work that can also be quite exploitative. Um, you know, as my friend, the labor journalist Sarah, uh, Sarah Jaffe says, no one ever tried to rescue me from the restaurant industry when I was a waitress. And I feel like we, that's just... It's an interesting question. It's an important question, but it is a question that I think puts such a burden on sex workers to prove themselves, to prove that they are empowered, um, when I think the more basic question might be, well, what kinds of power and control do you have at work? What does it look like when you need to take a day off? Are you going to be penalized for that? Do you, can you choose the kinds of customers that you want to see? Can you choose the kinds of safer sex that you want to have? Those are much more fine-grained questions, and I think they speak much more to the reality of sex work than sort of these big picture ideas about empowerment and choice. Where does the movement stand? I mean, in the in the 70s and 80s, there were organizations like Coyote representing, well, creating basically a union for sex workers in the West Coast. There have been organizations that were roughly defined as feminist organizations defending the rights of sex workers. There's also been tremendous feminist backlash. Where are we right now? The sex workers' rights movement, you know, is older than that even. You know, some people would put its roots back to Stonewall even, you know, and the gestures of women like Sylvia Rivera, of Marsha P. Johnson, folks who were essentially funding gay liberation by hustling. Mm -hmm. And there's such an interconnectedness of those two movements. Like, I would say, like, let's go back a little bit further. And the women's movement in some ways... Um, in the 70s, thought of prostitutes sort of in the symbolic way. You know, these are the women that were thought of as being the most oppressed amongst us all. Um, but even in the 70s, I don't think the women's movement really considered that sex workers were people with their own demands and, and had their own political projects and that they were the experts and that they needed to be taking the lead. And that's the thing that I think is the most neglected right now, that there's a proliferation of feminist projects to save and rescue sex workers, and there are very few projects that sex workers are leading that get nearly the same kinds of resources and attention. So what would you do if you were in some kind of policy-making position, whether in policing or education or government, um, what would you like to see put in place to address some of the concerns you've raised? I feel like it's so above my pay grade <laughs> in some ways. But, you know, here's what I would do. Yeah. If I were, you know, invited into a city planning meeting, if I were, you know, invited to give testimony on behalf of any number of these anti-prostitution policies that are multiplying across the country. Michigan right now is looking at 23 different anti-prostitution, anti-trafficking measures just introduced since the beginning of the year. So there's certainly a lot of opportunity to intervene. And what I would say is, where are the sex workers in this conversation? Um, at what point are you going to consult with the people who are going to be most impacted by this policy? And what kinds of power and decision-making do they have in the process? Are they people that you consider yourselves to be fixing and rescuing, or are they people that you consider to be a part of the community and part of the process? But how can these women, and there are some men too, and lots of trans people, how can they be part of a conversation when sometimes just being public is putting yourself at risk of being criminalized? Even speaking out about sex work, outing yourself could be opening you up to, 
you know, different kinds of policing or other kinds of consequences, right? Even if it's not the police, you might lose your family, you might become, um, you know, perceived as an outcast, even in the groups that you are part of, that, you know, women's groups I remember being a part of in college when I came out as a sex worker, you know, that was that was it for some of those groups. So I understand the costs are really real. Um, but there are ways that people could do outreach to sex worker communities. I think of harm reduction projects that are active um, in many cities, folks who are doing syringe exchange, folks who are doing safer sex outreach. These are people who have contact with people in the sex industry, can build relationships and help open up the political process so that sex workers aren't stuck on the outside. If you were doing one thing right now to help a, a young person, perhaps, who's considering going into this industry, maybe to um, subsidize her journalism, good for her, um, what would you say? What, what, what would be your advice? You know, I would say find your community. And there, fortunately, with the Internet, there's many more options for people who are even isolated, who don't know any other sex workers in their day-to-day -day lives which is most people, um, you know, you have an opportunity online to connect with people who are in the sex industry who can let you know that you're not alone. Can you share information, sort of how-to information, how to keep yourself safe online without being getting in trouble? That's something that's quite risky because even in, in online communities where sex workers have, you know, created password-protected message boards, for example, to share information about dangerous customers, law enforcement have actually infiltrated some of those message boards as part of anti-prostitution policing. So the very measures that people take to stay safe sometimes can also expose them to criminalization. So the Internet might be a way to meet people, but people are still reliant on face-to-face -face relationships in order to actually share the kinds of information they need to stay safe because of the criminalized environment we are operating in. So what do you want to accomplish with your book? My point with the title is to say that this is a role. Yeah. This isn't a who you are. This isn't something that, you know, I think we think that there's this line in the sand that people cross where, you know, this is something you only do if you have no other options and no other choices. And once you do it, it marks you for life. And the intervention I'd like to make on that to say is that's not necessarily true. There are so many people who do sex work that aren't out about it that we'll never know. And it's not something that makes you an outcast. It's our perceptions about sex work that marginalize and push people to the side. And that that's what needs to be changed. So if anything, the intervention is on everybody outside of sex work <laughs> to say, this is what sex workers have to say about their lives. It's time to listen. Playing the Whore, The Work of Sex Work is just out from Verso Books. Melissa, Jara Grant, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. This month, Amnesty International voted to support a policy in favor of decriminalizing sex work around the world. The organization says they will now focus on lobbying governments to repeal laws prohibiting the sale of consensual sex. The position came after Amnesty spent two years conducting research on sex work, concluding that decriminalization is the best policy to protect the rights of sex workers. Amnesty International's policy director replied to the resulting controversy and attacks with the following. We have chosen to advocate for the decriminalization of all aspects of consensual adult sex, sex work that does not involve coercion, exploitation, and abuse, as criminalization makes them less safe. I'm joined now in studio by Cindy Clay, the executive director of HIPS here in Washington, D.C., to discuss this further. So, Cindy, I wanted to start just by getting your initial response to uh, this amnesty, the research that they did, and then them deciding to take this position after... Uh, exploring the subject for two years. Yeah, well, we're very proud of Amnesty taking, you know, what could be a difficult stance for people to understand, but a stance that, you know, is going to make the make the world a safer and better place for people who are engaged in sex work across the, uh, across the world. And uh, can you talk about the the 
nuance in the language of the decision they said decriminalized. What is the difference between decriminalizing sex work and legalizing it? And then what has been uh, uh, the effect in places like Nevada where parts of the state have actually legalized sex work? Right. So the difference between decriminalization and legalization is a nuance, but for sex workers themselves, it's a very important one. So in countries where we have um, examples of decriminalization, you know, we have laws on the books already, uh, both that help sex workers avoid violence, that provide, you know, criminal prosecution for people who are violent or abusive towards workers of any kind. This really becomes a labor rights issue at that point. Um, the, the issue with, with legalization, in, for example, in Nevada, is that there are extra laws and extra regulations that actually tend to perpetuate some of the labor violations and human rights abuses um, that we can see that can happen in sex work because sex workers are treated as a, as a special population that need more laws and, and more regulation um, in, in ways that potentially put them at risk. Well, you already said it yourself, really, that the issue of sex work becomes one of uh, workers' rights and that's kind of what Amnesty has suggested in this position. But I'm wondering if you can explain for viewers some of the ways that's true. How does a discussion around sex work, which is taboo, even in a country like the United States, which is supposedly uh, liberal in terms of uh, uh, some issues regarding sex, how is sex work uh, uh, fit into a discussion about class and workers' rights in this country and around the world? Right. So, you know, in the U.S., um, I would actually probably say that the the majority of people engaging in some kind of sex work, and, and for us, that includes people who are doing any kind of sexual exchange. So that includes, under HIP's definition, that generally includes people who are, you know, potentially what you would see as consensually engaging in sex work in places where there's not coercion, there's not abuse, there are people hanging out their own shingle and being ind independent entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. This is the way that they have decided to, to, to support themselves. Um, we have, you know, individuals who have come to us who say that as a as a single mom of three children, doing sex work was the way that this woman was able to pick her kids up from soccer practice um, and provide them with housing and, and, and an ed education without going too much into poverty. Uh, it also includes individuals who might be in coercive circumstances, who might have someone forcing them to be on the streets, or, or worse yet, people who are trafficked into the country where their passports are taken and they're, and they're, forced, to, to, um, they're, they're forced to perform sex work. In all of those cases, decriminalization helps them because it allows them to have the same access without fear of coercion or abuse from police or law enforcement and allows us to put those resources actually towards finding people who are abusive and who... Um, you know, violate people's rights. Um, under a decriminalized statute, that is so much easier, and it's not pushed farther underground. And that's why people across the industry and people with different experiences actually are supporting, the vast majority of people are supporting decriminalization. And would decriminalization have any effect uh, on the trafficking issue that we talk about, right? Because I, from how I would see it, you'd think that having something criminalized pushes it further into the dark mm -hmm. behind the scenes, which makes something like trafficking more likely. So would decriminalizing it actually encourage that to be reduced? What would the effects be? Right. Well, sex workers talk to us, including sex workers who are doing this independently, who no one is coercing them. Um, and additionally, people that HIPS works with, which is primarily a street-based population, they're doing sex work either um, because they're homeless or because they're, it's the only way that they have to survive. Both of those individuals are, are telling us that fear of police, fear of arrest, um, harassment um, due to perceived engagement in sex work, which primarily happens to people of color and transgender women in the U.S. Um, <clears throat> it's that fear of police and fear of arrest that keeps them from either reporting instances of violence that they see, from feeling comfortable coming forward when they themselves are um, you know, victims of violence. And even in, in, you know, in Sweden, where they have what they call the Swedish model, where technically sex work is decriminalized, but the purchase of sex is criminalized, we have instances of sex workers who, just because any portion of the aspect of the industry was decriminalized, um, judges would tell them that they were unfit mothers, that they weren't able to, you know, do um, restraining orders against people who were abusive to them because they lived, they worked in an industry that was pushed so far underground and that was seen as somehow not connected to labor or human rights. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I have to get you to respond uh, for the sake of playing the devil's advocate to what I can see are already going to be the types of comments that we'll receive online. What do you say to people who 
claim to be on the side of women and then say, oh, but sex work is demeaning or it's bad for women. And even as people who, uh, even individuals who support uh, feminists or, or uh, the women's movement say that sex work, they kind of draw a line there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I... Sex work is is one of those very it's a very challenging issue for us to deal with, and I think especially in America we're we're not always great about talking about things like consent, mm -hmm. um, and we're still learning to talk about things like sex. Um, sex work might not be the job that you want your sister to do. It might not be the job that you want your child to do. Um, there's lots of demeaning jobs in this country. There's lots of examples of labor and human rights violations that happen with people in all forms of the industry that are trafficked. Criminalizing it, however, which has been our stance for many, many, many years in this country, has not solved the problems that we see. With, with sex work. Arresting people for sex work does not help them either have more agency or to get out of the industry. That's, it's not, it's the wrong tool. Law enforcement and criminalization is the wrong tool. And my agency has worked for 20 years to help people get out of sex work. And we still have a solidly anti-decriminalization stance because arrest records only make it harder and cause a revolving mm -hmm. door. And that's why I guess we're trying to emphasize the point that we don't want to call it prostitution. We want to call it sex work to emphasize the fact that it's about labor and it's about human rights. Uh, Cindy Clay, executive director of HIPS, thank you so much. In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. In what other ways um, does sex work work a little bit differently because it's not seen as, as legal by, by the government? What, what other barriers do you come up against and what would you like to see change? Hmm. <laughs> I'd like to see a lot change. Um, let's kind of take a moment and define our terms. Um, what I would like to see and what I'm an advocate for is the decriminalization of sex work, which means that in no circumstance can someone offering to have sex for money be arrested. It means that if a sexual act would not be illegal if no money changed hands, then the having money in the situation should not make it illegal. That's what decriminalization means, and that's what I want. Uh, we don't have decriminalization anywhere in the U.S. In some parts of Nevada, we have a system of legalization, which is completely different. And people confuse those terms a lot. They mean very different things. Uh, certain counties in Nevada operate brothels. You can go there and work legally, uh, and you, you'll get all the tax forms, and it will be reported to the government, and it's perfectly legal income. Um, it's a very controlled system. You have to. You can't just go down to these counties in Nevada and set up shop yourself. You have to go and work for one of the big brothels there. It costs money to get a license. Uh, they have a system of health checks that some could, would consider to be a little invasive. Uh, they take part of your money, which you can debate is fair or not. Uh, but it's a very strict, strict and regulated system, and that I don't think is really geared in favor of the individual workers at all. It's really geared in the favor of the people who are the brothel owners. I don't think that's best. Um, so I'm an advocate of decriminalization. I'd like to see you know, all criminal penalties removed. That doesn't mean that there will not be regulation. That's completely different from criminal codes. Um, so there's a big gap between what I personally, selfishly, would like to have versus what's probably best for the most number of people. Um, I waited tables some in high school, and I worked at a fast food joint. Uh, and then at 19, I began to do sex work, and I've done it ever since. I have almost zero experience of any job that is not a sex work job. And the vast majority of that has been independent contractor stuff. So I don't have any, I can't really speak to what makes a good employer-employee relationship because I never had those. What I want is just to be left completely alone. I'm happy to pay, you know, a business licensure tax like anyone would pay in a comparable profession, state and local taxes, federal taxes, that's fine. Otherwise, I do not want you to make any rules, any laws, any regulations pertaining to my behavior. That's what I would like. Um, and that's a selfish wish. Uh, 
I am a career sex worker and I've built this whole kind of arc of my career with my clients and, and so aside from just being basically a decent person, it's in my best interests to protect also my clients' interests and make sure that they are safe and that they have, you know, they, they receive justice, shall we say, in the, in the transaction. Um, not everyone has that at heart. Um, so, and clients deserve safety and justice as well. Uh, so I recognize that aside from my perfect little world of what would suit me, there's probably some greater issues of what's the best for everyone, and that would be some regulation. Uh, last winter, I went down with some friends to Australia, where for much of the country, uh, sex work is decriminalized, and there are some systems there, because I wanted to see how exactly that worked. I only ever worked in Nevada, which was not a good example of a good system for the workers. Uh, and Australia was really amazing. Uh, I was in Sydney, and it's pretty much you can you go to the brothel and they interview you, and then you can start working, and it's fine. I mean, it's I'm obviously over 18, uh, and I didn't see anyone who looked younger. Uh, in the state of Victoria, which is where Melbourne is, they do have a health card system that I participated in, and it was perfectly fine that I was an American, and it was really easy to deal with, and it was free. And so I'm like, okay, you know, this is... I'm sure some people would say, you know, there's a lot of division about, like, health checks and stuff. Do I think that I personally should be subject to them? No. Do I recognize that they might have some value in a decriminalized system? Yes. What, what sort of policies do you think that uh, people could push for locally that would make your job better? Ooh, well, there's a lot. Um, in general, like... <laughs> Street prostitution is the, is the area of prostitution who those women get, those people get harassed the most by police. Um, people who do not work on the street are harassed exponentially less. doesn't mean it never happens because it does. Um, but policies that flow from kind of a stop and frisk, broken window attitude generally are bad for sex workers um, who are on the street. Anytime you have like, someone who's campaigning on a real, you know, clean up the streets, law and order, that's not, that's not a good sign. It's not that Democrats are always awesome about sex work because they're really always not. Uh, there's not a whole lot to choose between Democrats and Republicans on this issue. But uh, someone who advocates for more sheltered beds, uh, more kind of community-oriented policing, uh, that's always better than not. If someone tries to, wants to rob me, I'm not going to call the police, which is why I have to be really careful about handling my money. I don't keep large amounts of money in my house uh, because what would I say? What would I do? Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm careful not to keep a lot of cash around. I'm careful not to advertise um, on the outside of my house that there's a whole lot, that there's any reason to be interested. Um, I'm really all about like keeping my yard mode and keep the music down, and I'm a really, really great neighbor because I don't want anyone to have a problem with me. So, so you work you work on your own. You basically run your own one person business. How does sex work vary? Are there different structures there? Um, well, that's a great question. Uh, I do work alone. I prefer to work alone. I have uh, worked in group uh, structures with other women, and it's been great. But I sort of. I myself really like to just have complete control over when I work and how I work, and I don't have to, you know. But uh, my ideal, my personal um, ideal system of what sex work would look like in a decriminalized atmosphere would be small groups of collective women, of people working together collectively. I just think that's the most positive system for sex workers. I would not like to see nothing but big brothels, um, although those have a place. I mean, they some people really just want to walk in and clock into work and be there and not think about it and not do anything and then walk out when they're done. That's what they want. And so that's okay. Uh, there are advantages to that, like travel, for example, because, yeah, you can just roll into town and show up at the place and be like, hey, I want to work, and within 24 hours you're working. So it does have certain advantages. I'm not a big fan of Big Brothers in general. I think that like two to four people working together is a really great number. You can share a space. If you need a security person, you can share a security person. You can share clients amongst you if that's what you want to do. Uh, so it's like a sex worker co-op. Um, yeah, a collective, a co-op, I guess is what you'd call it. I'm, uh, yeah, and I think that's, having seen those systems work really well, that's my personal vision of what the best 
system would be. Mm-hmm. I also think that, that would probably be the easiest to accommodate into kind of an existing social structure. You could work out of a residence that way. You could work out of a small storefront kind of place. It would be easy to integrate. That was Seattle dominatrix and writer Mistress Matisse. You can follow her writing on Twitter at Mistress Matisse or on her website, MistressMatisse.com. based organization. We started in 1987 as sex workers to manage our own response really to pressures related to the police, the law, HIV and AIDS. We support sex workers and advocate for them and their jobs and make sure that you know they've got a safe place where they can come to and just talk about how their day's been, um, you know, what it's like putting up with the clients. Um, putting on condoms, exiting the sex industry, what to do when you want to leave the sex industry. What do you think about this debate on the language, like what words do you use, sex worker or prostitute, does it have any significance? <laughs> you know, language comes and goes. I think the association of the word prostitute and prostitution is offensive to a whole generation of sex workers, so we prefer the term sex worker and we prefer to talk about sex work. Do you have any estimates on how many uh, people work in this uh, sex industry? The last time there was done a count of the number of sex workers, it was around about 3,500. 80% of sex work takes place in brothels indoors. Around about 17% of sex work takes place on the streets. Now, of those working indoors, two-thirds work in brothels and one-third work privately for themselves. What was the situation before the uh, new regulation was adopted in New Zealand? Okay. Prior to decriminalization in 2003, it was illegal to receive money for sex. You could be a sex worker, but you couldn't get paid for it. It was illegal to solicit. It was illegal to keep or own a brothel. It was illegal to procure someone into sex work and it was illegal to live off the earnings of a sex worker. We used to be arrested, taken to court, charged and convicted. Our name would be in the paper. It would mean that our name would be attached forever to prostitution. So if we were looking for alternate work, it would sometimes pop up as part of our police record. What about the new legislation? Like How, how does it regulate the industry? When Sex work was decriminalized in New Zealand. All the old laws penalizing sex work and sex workers were removed from the law books. So brothel keeping disappeared, living off the earnings disappeared, procuring disappeared, and soliciting disappeared. So nobody can be charged with any of those anymore. Right at the heart of the law, it talks about protecting the rights of sex workers. You are protected by labor law. And that's very important. Every piece of legislation applies to you. So occupational safety and health legislation, the human rights legislation, all these sorts of laws are available. Standard laws in relation to employment laws, employment contracts, all that came into effect. And most sex workers who are working for a brothel may have some form of employment contract. Some city councils make district plans to control where bars can be, for example. And these same things are used to control the location of brothels. You're allowed legally to be a brothel operator. You must have a brothel operator's certificate and you file that with the court. A number of sex workers work by themselves. 
some of them will work in small collectives of sex workers with maybe two or three other people working with them. They are just in charge of themselves. They just share the expenses for advertising, the expenses for the apartment. Nobody's taking any money off them. Usually when the law changes, sex workers are treated like children and governments say, okay, we'll tolerate a certain kind of sex work and usually they do what we refer to as a legalised model where they say, well, we will licence people, you know, brothel operators will licence individual sex workers and will have the microscope on them and police them. In New Zealand we rejected that model completely and utterly and we said that it was important that sex workers be allowed to maintain, you know, control over the, their own sex work, that they have as many options as possible. If they want to work together that's fine, as equals. If they want to work in a managed brothel, that's fine, that's okay. If they want to be street-based sex workers, that's also okay. So that, that model of uh, having a third party take charge or control sex workers was rejected. Is there any evaluation of the uh, decriminalization law in New Zealand? The law was evaluated properly in 2007-2008. The results of that evaluation were published by the Prostitution Law Review Committee, by the Christchurch School of Medicine and by the Crime and Justice Research Centre at Victoria University. All of them found that the um, law, the current law, which decriminalised sex work, is working in favour of sex workers and it has increased their occupational safety and health, it has increased their protections and it has increased their, their human rights. They found, doing a comparison between the old law and the new law, that private sex workers are far more able to um, refuse a client than they were before. For the street-based sex workers, the client didn't refuse to have pay the money. The sex worker rang the police, the police came, the client had to get the money out of the ATM machine, pay the sex worker. So these are the positive things. We had, um, we had a situation where a sex worker, a group of sex workers, had a problem with a brothel operator and they were, you know, he was, he, he was asking them questions and the sex worker said actually, I don't need to tell you this information, I've given it to the receptionist and I feel that you're sexually harassing me as a brothel operator and I have rights. And she lodged a complaint with the Human Rights Commission and they awarded her $25,000 in damages for sexual harassment inside the brothel. And they said to the brothel operator, okay, um, you clearly don't know what harassment, sexual harassment is and you need to have some training. You can still be a brothel operator but you just need to train and you need to pay her $25,000. There are many complaints from sex workers who work in brothels on like exploitation. Because the law changed, it doesn't mean exploitation stops in a workplace if it's being exploitative. Some sex workers say, look, I want to make a stand, I want to um, stop this practice and I have rights and I'm going to do it, and they do. Whereas others might just say, oh, it's easier to just workplaces? Yes, there is still some forms of violence against sex work, but lifting a law does not prevent violence from happening. Putting a law into place does not prevent violence from happening. The thing is, sex workers can now complain to the police if violence does happen. 
and as a result it gets reported more and as a result the police are able to take more details and arrest the person who is ultimately responsible for that violence. Some people say that most people in the sex industry are victims. Uh, what, what do you think about this? Well, I think of course you're a victim if the police are arresting you. The law turns people into victims if it's illegal. You know, there are sex workers who are certainly in situations that are not good, uh, that are dangerous and could be improved on. But even so, they may not say that it's sex work that is creating their situation of hardship. They'd say that perhaps it's sex work that's alleviating the hardship for them. 773 sex workers were interviewed in New Zealand and it was found that a tiny percentage said that they had been coerced. There are claims about trafficking and everything like that, but the New Zealand Immigration Service um, goes through brothels on a regular basis looking for people who are trafficked. They have never found a person who has been trafficked in ever since decriminalization came into effect. That's 10 years ago last year. Um, the New Zealand police have never found any evidence of trafficking within the sex industry. They are more likely to find evidence of forced employment or coercive employment in fisheries and in agriculture or viticulture than they are within the sex industry. It's unfortunate because you cannot come to New Zealand if you want to be a sex worker. So that measure was put in place at the time by the immigration minister who said it was a, an effective way to stop trafficking. And what has happened is that we have a population of sex workers who are migrants who are working illegally and you know, that makes it difficult for them. It means that they could be deported. So really, migration laws should apply to sex workers in the same way because the very reason that part of the law was put there was to stop trafficking, and yet we would say it actually helps people end up in exploitative positions because they can't speak out because they're illegal. So it's a contradiction. What do you think uh, about uh, this so-called Swedish model, which is like more and more popular in Europe, that's uh, punishing the clients of sex workers? Oh, we're really pleased it hasn't made its way to the Pacific. I think it's an appalling situation for sex workers. I remember working illegally as a young woman, and we'd do anything to get our clients, you know, like just shift the law onto them. Look, we would have to duck and hide and go into places that we'd prefer not to to find them. I think it's not a good situation for sex workers. I, I think it's really harmful and if these governments who are considering prosecuting the client's fault about why they're doing this, you know, that really they should be looking to protect and assist and support sex workers not to make their situation more precarious. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional websites and online portfolios. With a keen eye on design and a forward-looking vision for the internet, they help you build websites that you'll be proud of today that will also allow you to evolve with the future. They are constantly adding new templates and designs, as well as integrating new technologies to work seamlessly with your website. So as the way we use the internet changes, Squarespace changes right along with us. If you're ready to give them a try, you can do a free trial for 14 days with no credit card and then once you're ready to dive in everything starts at an amazingly low $8 a month and you can take an additional 10% off of that when you sign up by using the offer code LEFT at checkout. If you sign up for a year you get 10% off the full year as well as a free domain with your purchase. So try them out today and use the offer code LEFT when you sign up to save yourself some cash and to show that you support this show at the same time. Squarespace. Build it beautiful.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, support the decriminalization of sex work. Feminism has an unfortunate and harmful rift when it comes to sex work. While activists and talking heads will all come out to defend bodily autonomy when it relates to pregnancy and abortion, only a frustrating few seem willing to show up to acknowledge the agency of sex workers. Despite sex workers risking stigma, future employment, and even physical harm to speak out and tell their stories and debunk myths, many still see them as victims to be rescued or as complicit in the subjugation of women. Amnesty International's decision this month to support decriminalization, siding with 237 organizations in 71 countries that make up the global network of sex work projects, rather than the quote-unquote rescue industry, has sparked a new round of public discussion on the issue. This means right now is an important moment for allies to learn and get involved. If you're new or have reservations, there's no one better than Melissa Jarrett Grant on this topic, and we've heard from her today in the show. She has the personal and activist history as well as an accessible style for explaining the intersection of issues that make decriminalization important and sensible. This is from her piece at The Nation on Amnesty's policy shift. Quote, Using the criminal law to control sex work means police are pitted against sex workers, and sex workers can pay the price with their lives. Sex workers who are also migrants, transgender, and or people of color or ethnic minorities are intensely subject to this kind of criminalization and exclusion. Criminal law only adds to the challenges, poverty, marginalization, access to health care, that many sex workers already face, unquote. Basically, as we see with almost every other thing that's been criminalized in this country, making sex work illegal only intensifies existing hardships and marginalization while propping up private prison profits. The only way to fix it is to change prohibition laws, and that starts with changing public perception, which means we need to be better allies. The Sex Worker Outreach Project at SWOPUSA.org is a great starting point for becoming an ally in your personal and professional spaces. They have basic language tips for medical professionals, advice for academics and teachers, ways to get involved in your community, support for the partners and friends of sex workers, and links to other organizations' resources. Their community support line is national and open to current and former sex workers, allies, and grassroots organizers for general advice, crisis counseling, referrals, and legal information. You can reach them at 877-776-2044. Their resources page also has safety and screening tips for sex workers, increasingly important as sex worker-controlled avenues like My Red Book and Rent Boy are shut down. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. If bodily autonomy and labor rights matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Sex Workers Outreach Project resources via social media so that others in your network can become allies too. Everybody says they won't change, but nobody wants to do what it takes to make it better. Everybody complains, but nobody ever wants to take the blame. And nobody ever does anything. I wake up in the morning, and what do I see? I see my reflection in the mirror. With all the talk about cheating, the Ashley Madison hack, and sex workers getting busted, the Rent Boy bust, it was fun for me personally this week to get an update from a reader, a satisfied Savage Love customer who happens to be a sex worker who got married this weekend to her long-term boyfriend. That was one of the things I helped her with. She was doing sex work. Her boyfriend was having a problem with that. We talked about it. It helped. They're still together. Now they're married, which I would like to throw in the face of everyone out there who says that Marriage is somehow antithetical to writing your own rules or being a sex radical or doing your own thing. And that if you marry, you have to be monogamous or you're signing up for that or endorsing that. Not necessarily so. Marriage is whatever the two people who are married to each other say that it is. It is only as oppressive an institution as any individual couple elects to make it. And I don't think this couple is going to elect to make their marriage oppressive. But she wrote to say that they married this weekend and among the guests, one of her former long-term clients and his wife, 
who knows and approves of their relationship because it helped them through a hard time themselves where their marriage was collapsing. They weren't connecting sexually. They both agreed that they could do what they needed to do, as I say, to stay married and stay sane. And rather than troll Ashley Madison, rather than hit up a million people, he saw this one particular sex worker who, she writes in her email, told him he was being shitty to his wife. Not by seeing her, but by the other stuff that was going on in the marriage. This sometimes happens. You talk to sex workers all the time, and they will tell you that maybe the sex takes 10 minutes, and then there's 40 minutes left, and it's all conversation, or 50 minutes left, and it's talk. So many sex workers wind up being marriage counselors on the side, wind up being therapists, wind up helping their clients work on their social skills. So then this man went home and told his wife the things that the sex worker that he had been seeing regularly was telling him about him when he confided in her about their marriage and that she was siding with the wife in the dispute, and that helped open his eyes. It helped them reconnect this conversation this man was having, ongoing conversation this man was having with his sex worker. So at her wedding this weekend, four years after her professional relationship with this man ended, among the guests, this man and his grateful wife. We hear about stuff when it doesn't work on this show. We hear about the problems. We hear about marriages destroyed by cheating, for example. We rarely hear about the ones saved by them. Some are saved. People call in, people write when they have issues. People don't write so often, don't call in so often when everything's going just fine. It can skew our sample. It can make us seem like sex is always a problem, like everything would be just hunky-dory rosy if everybody kept their pants on at all times. Sometimes sex, though, it's the solution. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. And uh, I'm calling a little bit belatedly uh, about the Libertarian episode. Uh, and in particular, uh, Sam Cedar. But Sam Cedar does this a lot on his program uh, when he talks to Libertarians. He says, basically, oh, well, when you're saying that the core principle of freedom is more important than outcomes, I don't completely agree with him on that because, you know, freedom is an outcome and freedom should be the number one job of government. So I'll lay down a little quick model here of a libertarian set of libertarian core principles that are compatible with the left and that you'll notice fill in some gaps of the right-wing libertarian philosophy. Uh, principle number one is that government exists to make us more free than we would be in a state of nature. It should protect us from intrusions by external powers and from intrusions on our person, property, and rights by our fellow citizens as well. It should provide options to avoid exploitation, such as baseline uh, social services that allow us to not be exploited out of desperation, and institutions that help us resolve conflicts, such as courts, police, and ones that help us flourish to a greater degree than we would in a state of nature without government, such as universities and schools. Core principle number two, we all owe a debt to the society in the form of taxation, uh, and perhaps even uh, you could argue certain compulsory service or whatever in the form of maybe the draft or things like that. Those are a little bit tougher to argue. But basically we all owe to give back to our government for providing us all of these services and providing us this freedom. We owe society. Uh, and progressive taxation is generally the, the fairest way to get that back in proportion to the benefits that we receive from society. Core principle number three is there's no victim, there's no crime. So arbitrary, unaccountable power is inconsistent with true freedom. Uh, this is where these pre principles tend to run afoul of both liberals and conservatives, because you know people w still want to kind of arbitrarily draw lines in the sand. The line in the sand that this draws is that there is no victim, there is no crime. So if you want to sell drugs between consenting adults, 
other than some good faith regulation to make sure that, you know, if you're selling me heroin, it is heroin and not baking soda with gasoline in it or whatever, then other than good faith regulation to make sure that you're not defrauding, there's no right of society to stop us from doing what we want to do as long as we don't hurt somebody else. And obviously selling it to a children or operating a motor vehicle while on heroin, those are things that start to intrude into the realm of victimless of victim crimes. So 90% of Americans don't want gays getting married. There's no victim. There's no crime. Too bad. Owning a gun, there's no victim. Unless I intimidate someone with it or directly endanger someone with it, no victim, no crime. For crimes against the commons, such as tax evasion and pollution, the obvious victims are the people affected by the pollution and or, you know, the, the common, you know, the commons, the common people who own it and, uh, you know, the taxpayers who pay taxes. Uh, so merely being skeeved does not make someone a victim. So if you don't like my Mohammed cartoons, that's too bad. You're skeeved. Nobody hurt you. Nobody harmed you. If you don't like my cartoons about Moses, the same thing applies. So if I, if nobody's hurt, nobody is actually harmed, there is no crime. Core principle 1A is the last one. And it's basically a safeguard kind of to the category of victimhood in this case. And it's basically says that the core principles provided in number one are there to increase the freedom of all Americans. They do not constitute justification to control all Americans. So in other words, when we provide education, that doesn't mean we can say, we gave you education, you can't smoke for the rest of your life. We give you health care so you can't drink a soda that's more than 16 ounces. That's arbitrary and victimless crimes. And so, you know, the, the provision of social services is there to increase our freedom, not to constrain it. And so uh, it's just a, an extra safeguard. So I know this went long, and I hope it stirs up uh, some interesting rebuttals and conversation. And, and uh, I appreciate the show. Thanks a lot, Jay. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Kitty Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voicemail app of your phone and email it to me, jay at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. First of all, today, I have to thank a couple of listeners for actually inspiring this episode. Uh, one in particular, who is herself a second worker gathered about 80% of the clips for today's episode and actually gathered so many clips that I could probably make an entire second episode with just the stuff that she uh, brought to my attention. And, uh, you know, so huge thanks to her for uh, all of that work. And when I asked her if she wanted to share her story as well, this is what she had to say to me today. I'll think about calling. Unfortunately, since sex work is illegal, I need to make sure my identity is protected. I could lose everything. That's what's ridiculous. We sex workers can't talk about this because we are quote-unquote criminals. We could lose our children and our freedom, my two priorities, if we fight for our rights. What worker in America who isn't causing any harm to others is still in that position? We can't fight for our rights with our freedom tied behind our backs. Who will fight for us? So clearly, helping putting this episode together was her way of fighting for herself. So I just want to make sure that that was known to all. Now, secondly, on to Nathan and libertarianism. I, I really just played that because I wanted to respond to one single point he made. He said that he thought that freedom should be the number one job of government. And in a book that I read recently, an author poses an alternate paradigm for decision-making that makes a lot more sense to me than simply pursuing freedom. And the book is called Happiness, Lessons from a New Science. The author is Richard Laird, and he posits that the ultimate goal of society, which has its collective priorities theoretically put into policies by elected governments, should be happiness itself rather than freedom or anything else. And so here's what he has to say about it. Why should we take the greatest happiness as the goal for our society? Why not some other goal, or indeed many? What about health? 
autonomy, accomplishment, or freedom. The problem with many goals is that they often conflict, and then we have to balance one against the other. So we naturally look for one ultimate goal that enables us to judge other goals by how they contribute to it. Happiness is that ultimate goal because, unlike all other goals, it is self-evidently good. If we are asked why happiness matters, we can give no further external reason. It just obviously does matter. As the American Declaration of Independence says, it is a self-evident objective. By contrast, if I ask you why you want people to be healthier, you can probably think of some reasons why. People should not be in pain, they should be able to enjoy life, and so on. Similarly, if I ask you about autonomy, you will point out that people feel better if they can control their own lives. Likewise, freedom is good because slavery, prison, and the secret police lead to nothing but misery. So goods like health, autonomy, and freedom are quote-unquote instrumental goods. We can give further, more ultimate reasons for valuing them. And that is why we are sometimes willing to sacrifice one of these goals for the sake of another. To provide security on the streets, we lock up criminals, balancing the autonomy of the citizen against the freedom of the criminal. To reduce illiteracy, we levy taxes, balancing accomplishment against economic freedom. Okay, so to me, the idea that freedom should be seen as a means to an end rather than an end in and of itself seems irrefutable. I mean, freedom is good because it makes us happier than being oppressed. That's pretty simple. And it also seems self-evident to me that libertarians who push mindlessly forward on a relentless pursuit of ever more quote-unquote freedom end up coming to some pretty asinine conclusions that would result in policies where large groups of people are hurt as collateral damage through terrible pollution or out-of-control wealth inequality, and so on and so on. Now, on the other hand, pursuing happiness will naturally result in pursuing large amounts of freedom as a means to that end, but one will still have the proper framing to be able to balance freedom against other goals in the pursuit of happiness. Libertarians seem to be missing that framing, so they have no good way of balancing freedom against other aspects of happiness, which leads them far astray into a world where lots of people end up totally fucking miserable. So... If happiness is a higher, more pure goal than freedom, then how does that help reframe discussions about policy? Like, does that make sense? Are there arguments against that that I'm not seeing? And to be clear, I don't think that Nathan thinks of himself as a libertarian. He just clearly has strong libertarian leanings, but I'm not rolling him in with that whole crowd. And frankly, uh, I didn't hear much of what he said that I really disagreed with. So if you have any thoughts on what he said or what I said or about sex workers or anything else, uh, we would love to hear from you again. Email me a recorded message or call the voicemail line 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained See